Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is part two in our two-part exploration of techno-religion, of the convergence of religion and technology. So before you listen to this episode, you should definitely go back and check out our part one episode uh, of techno-religion. And at the beginning of the last episode, I told a story about a strange incident taking place at High Rock Tower in Lynn, Massachusetts in the 1850s, where people were trying to build an electromechanical messiah. And the chief intellectual architect of this event was a guy named John Murray Spear. We now continue the story. So who was John Murray Spear? He's in some ways a much forgotten and overlooked figure from the sort of radical reform movement of mm-hmm. the early 1800s. So John Murray Spear was born in Boston in 1804. His father was a blacksmith. He had a brother named Charles who was a year older than him. And he and his family uh, were members of the Universalist Church. And this was a, a Christian church that was popular in some parts of New England back then. And the Universalist Church rejected the doctrine of hell. That's one of the most notable things about them. They they rejected the doctrine of hell and eternal damnation, and they preached that the, the salvation of Christ was applied to all people unconditionally. Okay, I like that. Yeah, and they also uh, were very often associated with political radical reform causes. Oh, yeah, they were tied up in uh, abolitionist movements. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there, there is a somewhat utopian strain of thinking about earthly life, not just the afterlife, in the universalist circles back then. So John Murray Spear and his brother Charles grew up in the church of uh, Reverend John Murray, for whom John Murray Spear was named. And young John, they said, you know, he was uh, fond of going to solitary places and sort of thinking deep thoughts in his early life, he was apprenticed to a shoemaker, which I, I had no idea about this. But according to the book, which is my main source on John Murray Spear, which is called The Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear by John Benedict Buescher, uh back then, shoemakers were a particularly radical and bookish group. Really? Have you ever heard this? No, I never have. So the idea is shoemakers would have young apprentices, and the, the youngest apprentices would go out each day and collect a whole bunch of pamphlets and newspapers for the day, and then would sit there reading them out loud to all the shoemakers and older apprentice shoemakers while they did their work for the day. Huh. And I wonder why this is shoemakers. Why shoemakers? And, of course, the shoemakers would listen to the stuff and they'd comment on it and sort of have debates. I think maybe this is just completely uninformed. I wonder if it's because shoemakers have a job where they're mostly stationary, but it's not too loud. That's true. That's a good point, because essentially they're listening to podcasts, right? Right. And, yeah. and today, a lot of people listen to podcasts, like if you're, you know, you're working on a spreadsheet or you're doing something at your computer or you're driving, right? These are all tasks that, that, that are not too loud. And uh, they don't require a level of concentration that is so intense that you can't hear a couple of people talk about uh, some topic or another. Right. So John Murray Spear, the young John Murray Spear, got some early practice sort of dealing with radical ideas and participating in public conversations this way through being a shoemaker and through the influence of the Universalist Church, especially eventually through the Universalist luminary Hosea Ballou, who's a big name in uh, Universalist thinking at this time. And eventually John Murray Spear went on to become a Universalist minister himself. And he traveled around and ministered in several different uh, congregations and did a lot of radical reform activism what we would call activism now. So he became deeply involved in the movement to abolish the death penalty. Uh, He and his brother Charles were both very much involved with that. He became very much involved in uh, women's rights and in the abolition of slavery, especially. John Murray Spear was very much an abolitionist. He, He campaigned against slavery constantly. And he was also, I would say, in a way that was sort of ahead of his time, campaigning against what we today know as racism. Though I think back then a lot of white people didn't even have a word for that or, mm-hmm. or know what to call it, but he was against prejudice, not just slavery, but prejudice against people of, of different skin tones. 
And so there's a lot to admire about this guy. I think he, he was, he was active in William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist movements. Actually, there's a great quote from this book where William Lloyd Garrison was introducing Spear as a speaker at an abolitionist convention and he made this horrible pun, but it sort of reflects uh, his role. He says, although weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual, we do not object at all to the use of the spear. Ah. Now, this apparently is a, this like a Miltonian uh, reference here as well, right? Right, yeah. This is a, a reference to the angel Ithuriel in, mm-hmm. in Paradise Lost, which has a spear that essentially exposes the true nature of whatever it touches. It's, you know, the, it's the glasses from they live. Okay. <laughs> um, so the Ithuriel can touch the spear to Satan when Satan's in the form of a toad and reveal Satan's true nature as Satan. And this was a common metaphor in the abolitionist movement at the time. And I think more generally the radical reform movements of the time to sort of expose the hypocrisy and oppression of the standard governments and institutions of the time. Okay. So to summarize, this is a this is a guy who is very concerned with the real world. Oh, totally. Okay. But then John Murray Spear took a turn. <laughs> and while still I'd say in a lot of ways being concerned with the real world, he took a turn towards the spirit world. Uh, he became involved with what was known at the time as the spiritualist movement. So th- this for th- I think the first real piece of evidence here uh, that was in this book I read. It was in August 1847. John Murray Spear penned a review in an anti-death penalty newspaper that he was co-editor of called The Prisoner's Friend. Mm -hmm. And he penned a review of a book about spiritualism, which was The Principles of Nature, Her Divine Revelations, and A Voice to Mankind by Andrew Jackson Davis. And this was sort of a work in the emerging field of spiritualism. And Davis claimed to be in contact with the spirit of Emanuel Swedenborg, like channeling his statements from beyond the grave. And the the book alleged that there were these various uh, universal laws at play, and it sort of looked at religion from a rationalist angle, actually. This is a thing that might seem weird to us today, but at the time, spiritualism represented what some people believe to be a more scientific approach to the supernatural. So you might have traditional religions that are based on received traditions, whereas spiritualism, people sitting around channeling spirits, was actually an empirically observed phenomenon. Yeah, you, you might not believe that they were having real supernatural experiences, but the scientific thinking of the time was, well, at least we're we're looking at real phenomena here, and we can make judgments on them. Yeah, I mean, you you look back to the spiritualist movement. I mean, even in some of the the, the fringier stuff with seance and ectoplasm, right? Even if it, even though ectoplasm was a was a con, it was an attempt to say, look, here is physical proof, some sort of biological ma- manifestation of uh, of the spirit. Right. Uh, so a lot of these people who were in spiritualism were people who were deeply, desperately yearning for something to cling on to uh, about true messages from beyond, real transcendental knowledge. Mm -hmm. So some universalist ministers at the time were opposed to spiritualism. Uh, but in 1851, John Murray Spear broke ties with the Universalist Church after refusing to affirm a simple creed of the church, which is basically pledging allegiance to the guidance of the Bible and the person of Jesus, because he's he saw that as too constrictive on on sort of freedom of thought by that point. And it seems like in some way he began to at least secretly train himself as a seer and practitioner of mesmeric trances, you know, like the the mesmerism. Mm -hmm. So on March 31st, 1852, John Murray Spear actually began his career as a spirit medium. And this was a career with somewhat mixed reception among his social circles. He'd get messages from spirits uh, from beyond the grave, sometimes through automatic writing, where he would sit there and just start writing whatever came to his mind, Mm -hmm. and believing it came from a spirit. Sometimes automatic drawing. Some of these drawings sound pretty funny where he'd like draw a human and then like draw spirit guided labels for all their body parts, Uh, sometimes through speech. So sometimes he might just get up and give an extemporaneous speech on a subject he didn't know anything about, believing he was channeling messages from someone who did know something about it who was in the spirit world. So in spiritualism, like I mean there's a sense of evolution to this as well because it's the idea that we die, our spirit passes on and as spirits we continue to evolve 
and the spirit world is filled with uh, individuals that have uh, have a lot of, of, of knowledge, a lot of wisdom to share with the living. And John Murray Spear is essentially opening himself up uh, in, along these lines as just uh, anytime you want to pop in, I am open mic night for humanity. Just pop <laughs> into me. And so, so he's popping in and out of the real John Murray Spear and just becoming whoever's coming up to the podium to speak. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So John Murray Spear and his daughter Sophronia also. Sophronia. I love one. that name. Uh, they sort of became a spirit medium team for a while. They were both channeling messages of spirits. And for a while, he was getting various kinds of messages. Sometimes like vague messages would tell him to travel to a specific place and meet people to do healing rituals on them. One example was, I, I think at some point, Benjamin Franklin contacted him via spirits and told him to go visit a lady who had been struck by lightning and was ailing. And then also, yeah, he'd be given these discourses on the nature of reality. So Benjamin Franklin would inhabit him and speak through him on the nature of electricity, magnetism, the cosmic ether. There was also there was a particularly funny story in this book where John Murray Spear was in Cleveland channeling the spirit of the dead physician and founding father Benjamin Rush. And this is a direct quote from his speech. In speaking of the mortal body, it will be, all things considered, wisest to commence at what, looking at all things, may be considered the most, or more strictly speaking, the more important part, and that is the head. In the front part, just below the eyes, there is what is generally called by the common people a nose. And here it will be perceived that there are two apartments. What? What does that even mean? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... It didn't stop there, unfortunately. He, uh, so, or maybe fortunately, who knows? John Murray Spear didn't just get these discourses on the nature of humanity. He eventually started getting messages from a congress of spirits, this great sort of enclave of spirits that formed a general assembly in the spirit world. Uh, and these had subcommittees, basically, that would communicate to him. And they had these great names. One was the Association of Beneficence. There were also the associations of Electrizers, Elementizers, Educationizers, Governmentizers, Healthfulizers, and Agriculturalizers. It makes it makes sense, you know, in terms of the, the, the cosmology of the thing, right? Because if, if the living human is just the, the larval form, and the spirit form is kind of the adult, then imagine what kind of an adult spirit form someone like Benjamin Franklin transforms into, right? Right. And if you have enough of these individuals floating around in the spirit realm, they're going to form committees. Exactly right. So this is where things got really interesting. Because the Association of Electrizers, uh, that's not as sinister as it sounds, I think they were providing knowledge on the electrification of the world through, Mm -hmm. through technology, contacted Spear and said through Spear that they had some plans that needed to be enacted on Earth. And those plans were for what they called a new motor. Ah, yes. The new motor, which is the physical channel of the new motive power. And this is the electromechanical messiah we began the episode with. All right. At this point, I should probably jump in and just uh, give just a brief uh, overview of some of the metaphysics that are at play in Spears' spiritualism. Right. I already touched on the, we already touched on the whole idea of the, the human, the physical human as being the larval form of a, of a spirit form that continues to evolve. Right, but Spears' metaphysics actually played into the supposed mechanics of this machine. Yes. Um, he said that the mind has three functions, the human mind, three functions. It receives, stores, and transmits spiritual energy. Uh, and this thought energy is not generated in the mind, so you, it's, it's not you know coming out of the meat inside your head, but rather it's broadcast into our solar system by a cosmic god. And then the sun acts as a lens to direct this divine signal down to Earth, where it collects, of course, uh, in uh, north polar reservoirs, and then it dissipates down to the human minds across the Earth. Right, so we're sort of like receivers or repeaters of this cosmic signal coming from God, the electricity of God's love that is channeled through the lens of the sun. Yes, and notice all of these technological, scientific metaphors that are used in the creation of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a cosmology for the unseen. Right. So what was this machine, actually? Well, in mundane terms, it was a table with a bunch of pieces attached to it. 
Yes, if you were introduced to this electrical messiah, I dare say you would be disappointed. Yes. Because it is not the large robot Jesus that uh, you want it to be. Right, so Spear would continually get new messages from the spirits, constantly updating the plans for the machine. <laughs> and all of his supporters gathered in this place I mentioned earlier, the, the High Rock Tower in Lynn, Massachusetts, and worked for months on this, from the uh, summer of 1853 and into 1854, constantly making additions to the machine, changing things based on the spirit specifications. Basically, there was like a metal stalk. Uh, in some ways, I think it was said to have resembled a cross, a cruciform in nature, mm-hmm. uh, but it also it had metal parts extending out to the sides, and then these dangling balls and antennae of various types. So it's sort of like a strange metal Christmas tree cross-type object on a dining room table. Yes. And the uh, the descriptions uh, that we were reading about it, they were kind of like all over the place in terms of the... What was it supposed to do? Yeah, like what is it it physically supposed to do? What is it sort of uh, metaphorically supposed to do? Because it it was described as a sacramental presence, a holy force field generator, a gateway to the spirit realm. Uh, So it's kind of like this mechanical, symbolic body that's going to channel the the free energy of the universe uh, or, you know, God's love that radiates radiates out from the cosmic center. It's a North Pole-aligned aerial antenna to receive electrical spirit energy. It's um, And then on top of all this, again, he's he's open mic night for the spirits, right. these committees that are speaking. So when he drops back into just good old John Boy, he'll he's kind of ambivalent about it at times. He's kind of like, oh, yeah. I, I don't know anything about technology. Is that what they, those guys are telling you? Okay, that sounds all right. But he had some very enthusiastic supporters yes, <laughs> who were there to tell him, no, John, it's great. We're, <laughs> we're working on it. But to compound matters further, it wasn't simply going to be a, a sort of like a repeater or receiver, collector, and retransmitter of God's electrical psychic energy, mm-hmm. it was also going to be a perpetual motion machine. Yes. <laughs> Something that, uh, that apparently uh, science at the time believed could not exist. That's still pretty much considered to be right. There's no such thing as perpetual motion machine. Uh, motion always sort of gets lost to entropy, transformed into heat. But they wanted to create a perpetual motion machine or, quote, a self-moving machine, Right, self-moving in the same way that that God was perceived as being self-moving, and potentially in the same sense that a spirit with free will is considered to be a a self-moving soul by some interpretations. Right, so they wanted this piece of technology, this new motor, to be not just an effect, but also a cause in itself. And in that way, it would be kind of like creating a new man or a new god, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but also in in the it gets kind of complicated because it's like in a sense it's it's also just about the idea of it should inspire everyone, right? Right. But uh, then they also you do expect the thing to do something and to work. Right. So that they clearly thought that it would have some major significance in transforming the world, in ushering in some kind of eschatological event. They thought of it as as a sort of like transition to the end times, though not necessarily the end times in terms of the apocalyptic imagery we often think of or anything negative. They thought of it as like the new age, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Everything changed, transformed, the apotheosis, things brought up out of mundane existence into the new realm of life. Yeah, and kind of a uh, a sense, too, that it it is that spear that we were talking about earlier, that angelic spear that reveals truth. Yeah. But the truth that it would supposedly reveal would be the the importance, the power of spiritualism, and the and the reality of this, uh, this these meta- metaphysics that uh, John has been uh, revealing to his followers. Yeah. Now the story doesn't end there. Actually, I, I very much recommend this book I mentioned earlier, uh, the Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear, Agitator for the Spirit Land, because they continued to try experiments to get this thing to work. Unfortunately, it did not usher in this eschatological event. Um, but the, they tried to imbue it with personal magnetism to get it to turn on. So that w- they had this belief uh, sort of tied to mesmerism and things that 
people had these sort of spirit essences, then they'd have certain pairs of people of particular types try to transmit their personal or psychic energy to the machine to get it to animate and come to life. They gave it a ritual birthing ceremony <laughs> with a human mother. That did not go well with some of the townsfolk who found that a moral outrage and then uh, sort of took up arms against the machine. Uh, there's a whole story of sort of how this machine was received. But it also was received sort of as an embarrassment. And I think this is one of the reasons John Murray Spear is not as well remembered in history as he might have been, because I think a lot of the other radical reformers of the time were like, eh, don't know how much we want to be associated with Mr. Spear. Right. Yeah, I mean, I can def- definitely see that, because ultimately the thing did not work. Yeah. The thing did not it didn't meet any of the more elaborate otherworldly uh, expectations for the the thing and it didn't it didn't even really meet like the the the, the bare threshold required uh, to uh, impress the people who poured their lives into it. Sure, but another thing that I think is worth mentioning is that this kind of thinking isn't quite as obscure as it would seem to us because there were thoughts back in the 19th century about the perhaps borderline supernatural or psychic, psychically significant power of electricity. That's true. Um, yeah, back in the 19th century, uh, it, it, electricity had a noble, even if, if not a divine, reputation to the extent that members of the scientific community protested the idea of the electric chair as a degradation of both electricity and the scientific uh, breakthroughs that made uh, electrocuting a criminal possible. Yeah. So. So there was sort of like a, a, a new agey paradigm laid on top of the idea of electrical technology. Yes. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to uh, move uh, forward in time and discuss some more uh, uh, convergences of technology and religion. All right, we're back. We're discussing religion now in the age of science, but also in the age of science fiction, in the age of space, and in the age of UFOs. Right. So this has got to be one of the most obvious places that religion could go when it's changed by technology. Aliens. Exactly. Right. I I mean, mean, you've got to believe, because in so many ways, I can't remember who I heard make this point, but, but it's something I heard someone say a long time ago. Which was the idea that if you explained our idea of what aliens are to ancient peoples, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't even really make a distinction between what we're talking about when we say aliens and their concepts of gods. We have this distinction between, oh, okay, natural aliens, that's, you know, standard natural phenomenon, and supernatural entities. But they didn't necessarily make that distinction that aliens to them would be, oh, yeah, okay, so they, they're very powerful beings from a place up above, and they can travel down to Earth if they want, and, you know, we're powerless to oppose them. Yeah, essentially an alien uh, is a supernatural entity that is described and wrapped up in uh, in, in, in the keepings of science, right. in the traditions of science, so that it it makes at least... Uh, it makes some level of scientific sense instead of non-scientific. And if you look back through time, like you know, any any time someone has dealt with hallucinations, any time someone has dealt with sleep paralysis or some other encounter, you know what was once uh, an encounter with fairies in the woods, which what was once uh, an assault by demons or uh, or an encounter with ghosts, uh, increasingly become became in the, the past few decades an encounter with aliens or UFOs, right? Because that's the the cultural script that we can fall back on for the unexplained and the, essentially the supernatural. Perfectly, yeah. Aliens have become the new otherworldly organism, right? And this has translated into actual religious movements. The main one I want to talk about is Raelianism. Yes. So had you heard anything much about Raelianism before this? I had never done a, a deep dive into Raelianism. But, of course, you, they, they, end up, they end up coming up anytime you look in, at cloning uh, in particular. Right. Um, and then you know they pop up here and there with their various uh, sort of eye-catching uh, protests and whatnot. Yes, they are fond of, like, uh, demonstrations that involve nudity. Right. 
but also like inflatable flying saucers and yes. stuff like that yeah. sometimes. But okay, so what are they? So the Raelianism or Raelism or the International Raelian Movement was founded in 1973 or 74. I think uh, I've seen 74, but could be 73 by its chief prophet Rael or Rael, Rael born Claude Vorillon. And Vorlon introduces his own life in his book by saying, ever since I was nine years old, I've had but one passion, motor racing. <laughs> so right. here you've got your, your technological, uh, your in already. But the uh, Raelians believe in a branch of intelligent design, the idea that human life was created. It didn't, you know, evolve from inert matter, but that it was created in a conscious act of creation. But they believe in the kind of intelligent design that most intelligent design advocates like to skip over, which is the notion that life was engineered not by supernatural god or gods, but by a race of extraterrestrial scientists. Yes, the Elohim, right? Right, they're called the Elohim. Uh, so well, what does this word mean? You might have heard it before. Elohim is a word that appears in the Hebrew Bible. And in a literal sense, it's the Hebrew plural word for gods or deities. Mm -hmm. So it can be used to refer to groups of lesser supernatural entities like angels or pagan gods. Those are all Elohim. But it can also be translated to refer to the singular God of Israel. So one of the names of God used in the Hebrew Bible is Elohim. And in English translations, that's usually the word God with a capital G. The root of Elohim seems to be El, which is an older Canaanite word, and that was, uh, El was the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon, but also a generic word just meaning God, like a god, which also appears in the Bible as a title for God, though less often. So, how did all this come together? What started this event? Well, Rael tells the story in, in his own book. So he says in 1973, he was out motoring, you know, yeah, he, you he has a passion for motor racing out in France, uh, so to speak. And he stopped at a volcano that was uh, overlooking Clermont-Ferrand in central southern France. And he parked his car and got out to sort of like walk and jog around the volcanic crater. And there he saw an aerial vehicle coming toward him. Ah. And at first he says he thought it was a helicopter, but then he noticed it was completely silent. And then he realized... It was a flying saucer. He says it was about seven meters in diameter, 2.5 meters in height. So, you know, kind of modest as far as flying saucers go. And a stairway descends out of the bottom of it, and a being comes out to meet him. He says at first he thought it was a child because it was only four feet tall. He says his eyes were slightly almond-shaped, his hair was black and long, and he had a small black beard. <laughs> <laughs> I like that there's facial hair with these aliens. So, so often they, they don't get to rock the facial hair. Exactly, yeah. They're, they're way too smooth, usually. It's kind of strange. But anyway, th this being proceeded to have a conversation with Vorilon, informing him that he had visited Earth many times before and that he had chosen Vorilon specifically to speak to on that day. And it told him, that the alien told him to come back the next day to bring his Bible and something to take notes with. Uh, and so then it instructed him on many truths about the origins of life on Earth and the real meanings of stories in the Bible. And then, of course, uh, Vorilon, later under the name Rael, published books on the subject and founded the, the Rileyan or Rileyan movement. So the main basic idea is that life on Earth was created by a group of extraterrestrial scientists. Yes, and that, in a laboratory. Yes, and that we were created in the image of those scientists. Right. And so their beliefs in general have a lot in common with the various like ancient astronauts theories. If you ever watched any of those TV shows where it's mm -hmm. like, what happened? How did they build the pyramids? Aliens. Yeah, I mean, basically it comes down to the fact that you can take any ancient text that deals with uh, supernatural entities interacting with humanity, mm -hmm. and you can easily reread, reinterpret any of them as humans dealing with extraterrestrials. And it's it's often a really you know fun, imaginative exercise because it turns everything on its head. It puts things in a modern perspective, and then and, and you know ultimately we're talking about the exact same scenario. So that kind of of reinterpretation you just see throughout ancient uh, astronaut thinking. Right. So, yeah, uh, Rael explains in, in his book, uh, Intelligent Design Message from the Designers, how these beings explain to him that, like, the narrative traditions of Judaism and Christianity are all actually misrememberings or misinterpretations of ancient interactions with these extraterrestrial 
creatures, the Elohim, mm-hmm. and their technology. I'm going to pick my favorite example to cite, which is, uh, this is a section from the book about how the Ark of the Covenant is actually a nuclear-powered space radio. Makes perfect sense to me. So he says, Telepathy as a means of communication between the creators and human beings was only possible when the Elohim were in proximity to the Earth. When they were on their distant planet or elsewhere, they could not communicate in this way. For this reason, they set up a transmitter receiver, which was transported in the Ark of God, an apparatus containing its own atomic-powered cell. This is why in the first book of Samuel, chapters 5 and 6, when the Philistines stole the ark, their idol Dagon lay face down on the ground nearby as a result of an electrical discharge caused by their clumsy mishandling of it. They also suffered radiation burns from the dangerous radioactive materials, and he quotes 1 Samuel 5, 6, and smote them with emeralds. That word emeralds, I think, is generally interpreted to mean some kind of like hemorrhoid or tumor. Ah. Uh, and so this is, a, I don't know, I'd say that's a pretty clever interpretation of that. I, I mean, I, I kind of doubt many biblical scholars would give much credence to it, but, uh. <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a wonderful, uh, you know, overlay of science and science fiction right. over, uh, you know, a magical object from, uh, uh from, from an, from an older time. I mean, you see this, uh, even outside of Christian and, uh, Hebraic tradition with people interpreting some of the, like, super weapons that the gods give characters in the, the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, mm-hmm. where they have, like, essentially, you know, crazy powerful god weapons that they utilize. And some, uh, so, some people like to look back at those and say, oh, well, th- these were atomic weapons. These were laser weapons. Weapons. These were flying machines. And, of course, the Raelians don't just have technological explanations for the past. They also are a thoroughly technological religion in terms of their ethic for the future, like what they say should be happening in society. Uh, just one example is that the Raelians tend to be very in favor of human cloning. Mm-hmm. That's not something that's true of most religions, as far as right. I know. Yeah, they, also, they embrace and, and advocate. Uh, human cloning as a, as a necessary technology for the advancement of the species. Yeah, and in fact, in 2002, the Raelians claimed to have cloned a human being. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, this, this was is probably a, where a lot of people have heard of the Raelians be- before from this claim. There was a media storm. Uh, more precisely, not so much that the Raelians claimed to have cloned a human being, but they were involved in the publicity of this event. So a Dr. Bridget uh, Boisselier, I hope I'm saying that right, it was a Aurelian bishop, and she claimed that her company, an organization called Clonade, not to be confused with Clonus, uh, and not to be confused with Clonade, the clone benefit concert, <laughs> uh, which was a company originally founded in an earlier incarnation by Rael himself, uh, had successfully cloned an American woman and produced a healthy baby clone named Eve. And media reports at the time were really skeptical, and as far as I can tell, no real evidence that this is true has ever surfaced. So a lot of people thought it was just a publicity stunt for the church. Uh, but they maintained that they had successfully been the first to, to clone a, a healthy human baby. And whatever you think of that story, the Raelians typically remain very supportive of human cloning research. Yeah, and they they continue to claim to have really advanced uh, cloning technology, if not at their disposal, then like within grasp, right? Right. Yeah. Like they, uh, I read that they claim that their scientists are close to being able to transfer someone's mind into a new body. Essentially, uh, the kind of resleeving of human consciousness that one encounters in, say, uh, uh, Richard K. Morgan's science fiction. Okay. Uh, so you could live forever because here you've cloned the body and then, boop, just transfer your, your mind into the new body and flush the old one. Right. Well, this is always a big problem we've talked about when we've talked about transhumanist ideas on uh, the other podcast I work on, Forward Thinking. Mm-hmm. This is always something that occurs to me. People seem to be discussing the idea of digital immortality without answering the question of like, OK, maybe you could make a copy of your brain, of your memories or something inside a computer. But how do you become that computer? Yeah. How do you transfer your experience to that machine? Yeah, it, it gets existentially mucky really fast because you end up just coming against the the same old problem that we don't really have a good grasp on what human consciousness is we have this uh we run into this whole blind brain scenario where we can't really perceive what's going on yeah it it seems to me the much easier thing would be it's like you make a copy of yourself and then you die and then there's a copy of you yeah which is terrifying in its own way (laughs) but uh but also you know that's it's it's 
it's it's also yeah a form of immortality that that lines up with uh, our scientific understanding of of how we work. Sure. Yeah, I say with the Raelianism, you do get this overall sense of science and futurism as, as articles of the faith, um, and it's. You know, it's, it's easy to discuss a, a faithful of UFOs, cloning, and, and weird sexuality is ridiculous, uh, even as we cling to these ancient models and traditions that, again, involve angels coming down from above, bodily resurrection, physical immortality, uh, and also lots of weird sexuality as well. Well, th- I feel like that's that ties into that uh, that sort of like abhorrence of the new thing that I was talking about earlier, you know, the fact that that we find the presence of too much technology in our religious rites and in our religious holy places as kind of like somehow vaguely blasphemous or crass or or, or it just doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And I can totally see this parallel. When you look at the beliefs of the Rylians, I see a whole lot of parallels with a lot of ancient religions. uh, And I wonder if one of the only major differences in my attitude towards it is just that it's new. Yeah, I mean, you see that all. I mean, even as we were talking about it, we were kind of having fun with the concept. But uh, uh, with some of the concepts they they bring up, such as, I mean, I love the idea that I think Satan was a Raelian. Uh, not a Raelian. Satan was a Elohim from the Elohim home planet that was opposed to creating new life. And then Lucifer is another one that is involved in the, the, uh, the generation of life here on Earth and also had a role in creating the dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, like, like all of that, I mean, I can't help but, but laugh because it's, it's also kind of hysterical in its own way. But it's not really that different from anything that exists in, in any ancient religion. It's just we're more willing to buy into some weird outlandish story that was written down by some dude if that dude lived you know 500 years ago rather than 50 years ago right we just naturally assign more authority to the ancient regime yeah now in discussing religion and technology in the modern day we cannot help but discuss the Church of Scientology, a little bit. Right. Well, I mean, this is another religion, not just of the the current technological age, but it does have technology infused all throughout its practices. Yeah. Uh, So one of the things that would be pretty obvious is the E-meter, and we can come back to that in a minute. But the, the first thing that actually made me think of Scientology as a technological religion, or at least something that has technology deeply embedded in its ideology, is literally the use of the word technology. See, I've noticed in interviews, like televised interviews and things that I've seen with some representatives of the Church of Scientology, that they use the word technology when what they're talking about are the beliefs and practices of Scientology. Yeah. Um, so that kind of doesn't jive with how we usually use the word technology. Like I was saying, it's usually a machine, right? A technology is usually a mechanism. And they're talking about it more as in like how a doctrine can be a technology. Yeah, or even you can think of it in terms, I guess, of a blueprint, right? I have a blueprint for a steam engine. Sure, steam engine is a technology, but also the blueprint is is a technology in itself because it tells you it's how, how the process by which you create this thing. And that's ultimately what they're... They're offering their followers, right, a a blueprint to become this better engine. Totally, yeah. So I, I can see it like that. It is in in the dictionary definition sense a technology, perhaps. Like it is a mm-hmm. uh, at least an application of what they believe to be scientific knowledge to a practical purpose. Yeah. So you see mention of uh, di- the Dianetic spiritual healing technology, of study technology, and they also have uh, uh, their religious technology center, which aims to quote. Protect the public from misapplication of the technology and to see that the religious technologies of Dianetics and Scientology remain in proper hands and are properly ministered. <laughs> so it's like the FDA of the technologies of Scientology. Yeah, you know, in, in terms of, or certainly the, uh, the division of Scientology concerned with, with maintaining those copyrights and those uh, patents. Sure, yeah. But then, of course, there is actually within... Scientology in their actual practices a device that you've probably heard of, the e-meter. It's an electrical device that they use in what is called auditing. Yeah, I mean, it's very much... In, I mean, I would be tempted to make a, um, a comparison between the, the, the role of the e-meter with, say, the role of a, of a chalice uh, in, uh, in a Roman uh, Catholic tradition, right, that you need for the sacred rite of a communion. Uh, the, the use of the e-meter... Uh, in auditing is is essentially a, a, a sacred right. Okay, so what is auditing and what does the e-meter actually do? 
Yeah, the E-meter is a real thing, and its origins uh, uh, lay outside of uh, Scientology, actually. It is uh, an electropsychometer. Come on, Robert. Uh, it's a psychometer. Okay, electropsychometer, if you will. Uh, you know, <laughs> tomato, tomato. Uh, and this is a device for displaying and or recording the electrodermal activity, or the EDA, of a human being. It's actually one of the factors covered in a standard polygraph test, as well as in scientific studies regarding human emotions. So, again, the E-meter is not a technology that exists solely within the world of Scientology. It's one of the components of a polygraph. Right. But uh, Scientologists have been using it as an auditing tool, um, and they have their own patents for their own uh, e-meter devices that they continue to to update. Um, now, what is auditing? That's an entire right. that's an entire conversation in and of itself. But essentially, you have uh, an auditor that is uh, meeting with uh, uh, a member of the faith, and they uh, are hooking them up to the e-meter to record these uh, these reactions uh, in, in the dermis, basically their emotional reaction to stimuli, words, phrases, etc. And the Church of Scientology itself describes auditing. Uh, as this. They say the goal of auditing is to restore beingness and ability. And this is accomplished by one, helping individuals rid themselves of any spiritual disabilities, and two, increasing spiritual abilities. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, it seems to me that I certainly, not being all that familiar with the practice, can't say exactly how it's used, but it, it seems like a rough analogy to if you were to hook yourself up to a polygraph test when you go in for a Catholic confession. Yeah, that's kind of the the vibe I'm I'm getting off of it as as well. Uh, that it's you know it's it's about this individual meeting with you to to audit you to dis- to, to to discuss and and figure out your sort of em- emotional your psychic state right. And to do that, you know, they'll throw out some words and see if those words trouble you or you know what kind of an emotional resonance they create in your body. And so in this we we have a, a wonderful example of a of a modern religion that is using modern technology that has adapted modern technology for its sacred rites and observances. Yeah. Now, again, Scientology is a subject unto itself, and maybe one we should come back to in a future episode, uh, but we mainly just wanted to focus on the the use of the E-meter here. Yeah, and also I think the general attitude toward the idea of technology and what role it plays in the religion, because there the word seems to be held up in a positive light. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that's reacting against this thing we've been talking about, like the profanity of technology. Technology being this kind of like newfangled, un unbeautiful thing that that should be kept out of the sacred sphere of religion. These are ideologies that are actually really about intentionally bringing technology in. It's not incidental. It's not intruding on the religion. It's a core part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think this should finally bring us to the idea of the singularity. Ah, yes. It always comes back to the singularity. Right. Well, I mean, this is a a popular topic among weirdos uh, like us. And the, the singularity, if I'm sure you've probably heard of it before, but just in case you haven't, What's the general idea of the singularity? It's kind of like uh, the the purpose of the new motor. It's somewhat vague, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's a general point in human evolution where we sort of achieve a level of technological sophistication where suddenly uh, technology advances so rapidly that we cannot keep up with it, that it revolutionizes and changes human nature. A lot of times, it's associated with the, sort of the, a moment of transition to being transhumanist, like Mm -hmm. where human biology merges with technology and you get this new breed of humanity that's like cyborg, basically, that's ultimately uplifted and and transformed to a status of an almost godlike power by their technology. Yeah, kind of a point where you stop talking about, oh, this is the human race and they have technology, but rather the two are one or perhaps even the biological aspect of the species is secondary to the technological presence. Right. So one of the big names in singularity thinking would be Ray Kurzweil. He's someone who has been very positive about this idea, uh, who has had a lot of interesting and good things to say about it. Uh, he, he sort of popularized the notion of some of these transhumanist notions in uh, a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines, and then also in a book called The Singularity is Near. And I think Kurzweil, and at least some supporters of the idea of the singularity, would disavow the idea that singularity thinking is religious in nature, despite the fact that 
the phrase spiritual machines. <laughs> yeah, why'd you name book that, if that's your argument? Uh, but there are some critics and observers who do like to attribute sort of aspects of being a religion to singularity thinking. And one of those is the, uh, is the interesting author and technologist Jaron Lanier. So Jaron Lanier for many years has uh, been a, a big name in sort of technology circles. He's known as sort of like the guy behind virtual reality, and he's often described as sort of a genius polymath and, and just a big thinker. You know, he, mm-hmm. he has lots of big ideas about the future and and how we should handle it. And he's for a long time been a critic of singularity thinking. And a lot of these critics of singularity thinking point out that there are uncomfortably religious seeming aspects of thinking that we're entering an age where artificial intelligence and technology is going to enter this transcendental level. I mean, if you think about it, the idea of transforming humans into a higher state of existence is, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of like the end times beliefs of many religions. You you might think about it as a parallel to sort of like uh, the rapture in evangelical Christianity or something where people are sort of uplifted to a higher state of existence. Yeah, reborn into like a newer, better flesh kind of a situation. Yeah. Yeah, and also you could think about it as in some ways treating technology truly like a god that Mm -hmm. it is on one hand something that we're creating but on the other hand it is a force that is kind of unstoppable and at some point beyond our comprehension yeah that comes in and imposes its will on us its will is hopefully benevolent but (laughs) you can get opposing viewpoints about that from many other people who are worried about the the advances in artificial intelligence and what they'll mean for human life but yeah, I, I think that's an interesting critique and an interesting way of looking at, at singularitarianism as it might be. Yeah, is this a religion? And if so, what does it mean for all the people, especially all the people who are power players in Silicon Valley who are subscribers to this notion? Yeah, because at heart, it's, it's ultimately about human technology uh, becoming godlike. And then even by extension, the possibility that we create uh, artificial intelligence that is essentially God. And then, of course, the question is, what kind of God if we create it? Because if we look at the, <laughs> the models of, uh, of, the, of the divine that we see in our myths and, uh, and religions, uh, they tend to, you know, sometimes they're rather benevolent, but a lot of times they're moody and petty and destructive and, uh, and not always a friend to the little man. Right. Well, very often uh, they're selectively benevolent, right? Yeah. They might be benevolent to one group and malevolent to another. Yeah. And and they're not opposed to having sex with us in the form of various animals. So, ah, uh, yeah. yeah, we have to think about that. Well, we really have to hope that our uh, that our robot overlords do not take the Greek myths yeah. as their inspiration. Yeah, the Greeks the Greek gods tend to be about the worst because they they tend to be the the pettiest and the the most carnal. Uh, I, I find. But um, but yeah, do, do we end up looking at a, a benevolent uh, vision of this or a more diabolical one? I, I tend to. I tend to follow the the E and M Banks culture uh, uh, series uh, approach, where you have uh, kind of a, a benevolent uh, AI force that becomes, uh, in a way, the guardians of humanity, but also the um, the, the ruling power of humanity. Yeah, I've uh, on my other podcast a lot of hemmed and hawed about uh, you know what what I really think about the idea of transcendental artificial intelligence and, mm-hmm. and transhumanism and stuff. In the end, I, I guess. I've read enough persuasive stuff in both ways that I can't really say what I think it would truly be like in reality, though I can certainly see why it would take on a spiritual dimension in the minds of many people. Yeah, I always I always come back to there's one quote in uh, uh, Gibson's uh, Neuromancer uh, in which uh, someone comments that, you know, for ages we believed in making pacts with devils and demons and it was impossible until we made it possible through technology and the creation of AIs that you can enter into bargains with. This occurs in, in the book. Oh, wow. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of part and partial to some of the singularity ideas where, you know, it's, at least when we think of them in terms of religion, that technology begins to make possible things that were previously purely supernatural and from a scientific perspective non-existent, such as uh, the, the afterlife. Is we've talked about, you know, the possibilities of digitizing human consciousness and the human experience and, and placing that digital consciousness within a virtual world. It becomes conceivable to have a virtual heaven, a virtual hell, a virtual purgatory in which to file away 
your uh, your the, the minds of believers after their bodily death. Sure. Well, I mean, definitely people like Ray Kurzweil have envisioned a digital immortality or some form of technologically enabled immortality. And if you actually could achieve that, I'm skeptical of that, especially because of, like, how could you even be sure with the consciousness transfer problem? Mm -hmm. Uh, How could you ever know that that technology was successful? You know what I mean? Like, so, (laughs) so say you create a computer that claims to be a copy of somebody... And then that person's body dies, and uh, and their com- their computer copy continues to live on, saying, "Oh yes, I had continuous consciousness." How do you know if that's true? Yeah, and then and then <laughs> you get into a whole you know, sort of black mirror area of trying to to figure out how you're supposed to treat this thing. Um, you know, is if it's if it's not just completely happy all the time, then are you? I mean, what kind of monstrous thing have you done here? And then again, uh, so we're imagining digital immortality as being a sort of embodiment of heaven. But what if you didn't like your digital immortality? What if you didn't like your digital immortality and then you were unable to die? Hmm. You'd be like the uh, you know, sort of the, the immortal wanderer from uh, various myths, right? Where you're just sort of roaming across the the digital countryside. Uh, Hoping that one day uh, the divine forces, the AIs, or what have you, will will give you the gift of death, so you can just have sweet oblivion. Man, so th- that William Gibson quote you had is still sticking with me. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I keep going back to the the uh, like we have to invent the devil before we could sell our soul to him. Yeah, and uh, you know the virtual afterlife ideas come up in a number of short stories. I've read that the first example was supposedly. Um, American sci-fi writer Frederick Pohl, uh, in a short story titled The Tunnel Under the World from 55, uh, was the first to really deal with this. But one that I loved from a few years uh, back was uh, one of the culture novels by uh, Ian M. Banks, who I mentioned earlier, uh, his novel Surface Detail, which deals in large part with a, a virtual war over the existence of virtual hells. Oh, man. So there are various planets, various species and, and peoples that, can, that uh, have faiths that maintain virtual hells for uh, believers that uh, were, were judged to be morally failing. And so they're you know, digital realms of torment and horror. And you have lived plenty of living individuals and some digital individuals who say that is completely awful. You should not have that. In the same way that you have plenty of, of living people today who say that a theology of hell itself is kind of a horrible idea and should be you know we should way lay, we should lay waste to that as well and so in in this book uh, by banks uh, this virtual war over their existence eventually spills out into an actual real war in the universe uh, in in very in very fascinating ways that is a truly fascinating idea i'd like to read that book now it's good i i, I highly recommend uh the works of the late uh ian m banks Good, great stuff. Great science fiction that's uh, you know concerned with where technology is taking us, but also you know some of the uh, the, the philosophical existential problems of uh, the current times. All right, so there you have it. Uh, the end of our two-parter on techno-religion, the convergence of technology and religion from the earliest prayer wheels to the distant possibility of uh, a singularity birth God. This has been a wild ride. Thank you for having me on for this, Robert. Hey, hey, thank you. Thank you for joining me. Uh, hey, in the meantime, you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos. You'll find blog posts, links out to social media accounts like our Facebook and our Twitter and our Tumblr. And, hey, on the landing pages uh, for these uh, two episodes, you'll find links out to uh, some of the materials we've discussed here, such as that book, The Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear. If you want to get in touch with us about any strange stories you've had about the interaction of technology and religion, how you use technology in your religious practices, or how you've seen people use it in theirs, uh, write to us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs> 